Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to Cureleaf, a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a longtime patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Cureleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. Visit us soon at our new State College location. This is the Blue White Breakdown, the premier podcast for all things Penn State football. Talk about culture. It's something that should show up in every aspect of your program. It's the Blue White Breakdown, brought to you by Penn Live. Here are your hosts, Bob Flounders and David Jones. All right, ladies and gents, it's time for another Blue White Breakdown, except this is not like the typical Blue White Breakdown because we have a special guest, a special guest, former uh, newspaper writer a long time ago, but more well-known as an author and NBC Sports uh, Eagles and pro football aficionado, also worked in a wonderful capacity for NFL films, which I enjoy talking to him about most of all, and the the author of the incredible Philadelphia Eagles Encyclopedia, which anyone can sit down with and just bust open anywhere, and you, you can you can read stories upon stories upon stories of beautifully written about people you don't even didn't know existed. At least I didn't. Ray Didinger is with us. Ray, how are you? I'm great. Delight being with you guys. Great seeing you again, David. I should mention his latest book, which came out last year, called Finished Business Because He Just Retired. Another, an addendum to all his work. I'm going to give it to Bob Flounders here because he's more of the NFL aficionado, and that's what you like. We might we might touch on some Penn State stuff uh, later in the podcast, but just go ahead, Bob. I know where I would like to start, Ray. So I, I grew up, I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Both my parents from were from Philadelphia. My dad was a diehard Eagles fan. At about seven years old, it was actually 1971. I just couldn't stand it anymore. So I, I put on the TV, and the Cowboys were on against like the Cardinals, and I just said, "That's enough." I just he was a lunatic on Sundays. So I went to the dark side and my mom, who grew up an Eagles fan, came with me and she became uh, a Cowboys fan for the rest of her life. But the reason I bring it up is I'm so familiar with the the Philadelphia sports scene in the 70s and the 80s. What a fascinating time. And Bethlehem was close enough to Philadelphia that we could get the Philadelphia Daily News at like a newsstand. And my dad got it every day, bring it home from work. And I just I know that there were some great staffs in Boston and some other cities, but I I don't ever I don't think I've ever seen a staff like the one that was put together in Philadelphia that whether it was the columnists or the beat people, just incredible, incredible writing, you know, and it it was just a great time for me to grow up and learn about uh, sports in general. And as a Cowboys fan, I knew enough about the Eagles to uh (laughs) <laughs> to, to really follow along. But I, I always think, Ray, and I know you wrote about it in one of your books, the year 1980, I think in one calendar sports year, Ray, every major Philadelphia sports team went to the finals. That's got to almost be statistically impossible. 
I know you get asked a lot about it, but I, I just just growing up and being a member of that the Philadelphia Daily News and then experiencing a year like that where literally every day on your job you just had something incredible to write about. It was uh, it was the best of all possible worlds. It really was. I mean, I was fairly new as a columnist then. Uh, I had been the Eagles beat guy from 70 through 76, through the first year of Dick Vermeil. Uh, and then Jim Barniak, who was the columnist, left newspapers to go to television. Uh, and they promoted me from beat reporter to columnist. So I became a columnist in 77. So I was still fairly new to it. But it was really the beginning of kind of a sports renaissance in Philadelphia. All the teams, after being really bad for the early part of the decade, all the teams got really good all at once. I mean, the Flyers won the two Stanley Cups. Uh, the Eagles hired Dick Vermeil. Uh, the Sixers go out and sign Julius Irving, and then the and then the Eagles got on their run. And the Phillies went to the World's went went to the playoffs, lost a couple times, then went to the World Series. But by the end of the decade, you're right. I mean, at '79 into '80, all four teams went to the finals. Uh, and if you're the sports columnist in Philadelphia. Every day you woke up and it was not a question of what am I going to write about? The question was, what am I not going to write about? Because there were good stories all around you. I mean, you could have, I mean, you felt like writing something every day because there was that much good stuff out there. I got to, I got to mention Tommy and me because I don't want to forget about it. There was just a uh, press opportunity, I believe Friday. Uh, this is Ray's play that first, uh, first ran uh, through sold out runs both uh, near uh, near um, Rittenhouse Square, where you live, I believe was the first place it ran, about Ray's friendship with uh, Tommy McDonald, the uh, Hall of Fame crazy wide receiver. And, and I believe, I'm pretty sure the last guy, I talked to Ernie Corsi last night, and he said, if you say so, I can't argue with it. The last NFL player not to wear a face mask. That's That's true. And I'm I'm old enough to remember that in 1968, him coming off the on the field in his final game with the Cleveland Browns, he he'd already retired, and uh, Nick Scorich, uh, Ray told me, brought him back uh, because uh, Gary Collins got hurt, and he played in the NFL championship game where the Colts just destroyed my Browns 34 to nothing, uh, and he was on the field, he was without a face mask in 1968, you know. Against Bubba Smith, <laughs> yes, yes, and I mean they were they were all getting destroyed. It was it was really bad. They brought Frank Ryan on the field at the end. Anyway, Tommy and me is this an incredible story that goes back to 1957 when Ray first as a ten year old used to go to Eagles training camp in Hershey. They drive up and there was the practice field. Ernie said it was a beautifully manicured practice field, but yet people would drive up throw their blankets on the ground and have a picnic. The only people were there. Now, Ray, I want you to describe this scene as a 10-year-old in 1957 and contrast that with like the NovaCare complex now, which is like a gated community you can't get in. <laughs> you describe it very well, Dave. That's what it was. I mean, it was just, and it wasn't just the Eagles. I mean, that was the nature of pro football in the 1950s before the 58 championship game, you know, before the game really took off. I mean, in those mid-50s years, it wasn't as big as college football. College football was bigger than pro football. So the NFL training camps then were very open door. I mean, they were very informal. Uh, and if you were a real fan, which my parents and I certainly were, you could drive to their training camp, which was in Hershey, 
they practiced on this big open field that was right next to the to the high school football stadium. Uh, and there were no restrictions at, at all. You just pulled up, you got out of your car, you walked up, you stood on the sidelines next to the players. And there were actually people who did come with a picnic basket and a blanket and spread it out on the field and had a picnic lunch while they were watching the team practice. On Earth, it was like the surface of Venus, I imagine. But, you know. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it, it was just a kinder, gentler time. But, I mean, the other part of it was, and Ernie, of course, he probably talked to you about this, too, because he was a Colts fan. Every year, every summer during those years, the Colts and the Eagles would play an exhibition game. And the Colts would bus from their camp, which was in, in Westminster, and they would bus to Hershey with the Colts band, with the Colts fans. They would all come up in this caravan up the turnpike to Hershey, uh, and they would play a Saturday night game in this little high school stadium. And for two bucks general admission, general seating, come one, come all, you could go there and watch Norm Van Brocklin, Sonny Jurgensen, Tommy McDonald, Chuck Bednarik, Johnny Unitas, Lenny Moore, Raymond Burry, Gino Marchetti. I mean, in this little in this little high school stadium for two bucks, you could go in and watch twelve Hall of Famers play. I mean, that was that was pro football in the nineteen fifties, and we thought nothing of it. Uh, I think Artie Donovan is another character. For oh, that. yeah, that's exactly who I thought of is Art Donovan. He's yeah. actually talked about those trips to Hershey and drinking beer after practice and. All that stuff. Those guys, I mean, Ray, you know, those guys played hard. They practiced hard, but they still enjoyed their life. And I just feel like I think football was a little bit different uh, in the approach. I mean, it really wasn't that much about the money, you know, back then. They, you had to really love the game to play it and to go through, you know, training camps that probably were two months long and, you know, hitting every day, two a days, three a days, dick for meal, you know, style uh, practices that would come later. But, it's just a different time, and I'm sure it was just great to be able to experience that. Or, or worse, Ed Kayat, you know? <laughs> well, um, you're right. I mean, the way you describe it is true. I mean, it was it was the 50s, uh, and pro football players were just blue-collar working men. They really were. I mean, they were your neighbors. They they didn't live in gated communities now. Um, you know, they were they were living next door to you. You were you, know, you were bumping into them in the supermarket. I mean, they were regular guys. I mean, even the greats were regular guys. They all had jobs in the offseason. I mean, they all wore, had to work in the offseason to make a living. I mean, what they were making in pro football couldn't support a family. So when the season ended, some of the guys went and became beer salesmen. Some guys were substitute school teachers. Chuck Bednarik worked for Warner Concrete Company as a, as a, as a concrete salesman. Um, and that's how he got the nickname Concrete Charlie. It was Everybody thinks it was Concrete Charlie because he was like he was made out of concrete, which you could argue that maybe he was. But he got the nickname Concrete Charlie because he was when he wasn't playing football, he was literally a concrete salesman. This tells you everything you need to know about the ethos of pro football in the 1950s was Alan Amici, when he got drafted by the Baltimore Colts, was a rookie. And he and his he and his bride bought this little house, but this little house in Baltimore in the locker room one day, um, somebody said, hey, horse, uh, that's what I call him, the horse. Hey, 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 horse, how's it going with the new house? And he said, it's nice. We like it. Uh, we really do. Yvonne and I would like it. But we got a problem with the kitchen floor. We got to replace the kitchen floor. It's You got to put down new, take up the tile and put down new tile. But, you know, I'll find, we'll find somebody that can do that. And Johnny Unitas, Johnny Unitas, mind you, 
hears this and says, oh, I'll do it for you. And he said, really? He said, yeah, I used to work construction when I was in high school. I did that stuff all the time. You know, uh, how about Sunday, Saturday morning? How about if I come over? Saturday morning, there's a knock on the door, and here's Johnny Unitas with his tool belt coming in to put down the tile in Alan Amici's kitchen. Now, you think Tom Brady is, is putting down tile floors for anybody in Tampa? I don't think so. It's not that uncommon in the 50s. That's like Larry Bird doing his driveway, He's spreading the gravel on his driveway. <laughs> I guess that's about as far back as we can go. Now, we got so much ground to cover and not much time, so I got, I got to ask you about Buddy Ryan and that team. <laughs> you said you said in your book is the most interesting team that you covered, and that's a long time because we're talking over 50 years, uh, that late 80s, early 90s group. Now, why? And try to describe for the people what it was like covering those guys on a daily basis. Uh, it was just it was just a, a very um, fascinating collection of characters. It was the personalities on the team were just uh, different, um, but enormous. I mean, you had Reggie White, who was a great player, the best defensive end I've ever seen, but also literally a, an ordained minister on the side. Uh, you had Randall Cunningham, who was this spectacularly talented young quarterback who kind of wanted to be Arsenio Hall, you know, so you had that part going on. Um, you had Buddy, who was this, you know, who was this very different shoot from the hip, don't care what I say or how many enemies I make. He was your head coach. You know, Seth Joyner, incredibly intense, fiercely driven linebacker. I mean, all of the – and then, then they bring in Jim McMahon as the backup quarterback, as if there weren't enough crazy guys on that team. Oh, let's go get Jim McMahon as our backup quarterback. So you had this incredibly diverse, volatile locker room uh, being governed by – and not all that well most of the time, by this head coach, Buddy Ryan. And so every time you walked in there, I mean, you never knew what you were walking into. I mean, there could be anything going on. Literally hardball baseball games going on in there. Uh, you know, Reggie, Reggie White jumping on a teammate to just demonstrate the latest WWF move that he had just seen the night before. I mean, Reggie would do that to the writers. I mean, he did it to me once. Like I'm walking through the locker room and all of a sudden, I'm in this hammer hold that he had seen Ric Flair put on somebody the night before. And to him, it's he's playing, right? I mean, this is fun for him. I feel like my head is in is in a vice. And I, you know, Reggie, please, yeah, I'm, oh, oh, did I hurt you? I'm sorry. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff when you went in there, you never had to look hard for a story. They were all around you. You only had to survive to write it. And you didn't even mention Jerome Brown. And Jerome. And Jerome, who was maybe the biggest character of all. This um, extraordinarily talented defensive tackle uh, from the University of Miami that uh, that Buddy brought in and sort of became I, I, he was sort of the catalyst of that whole defensive line. I mean, Reggie was the best player. Reggie was certainly the best player, but Jerome was kind of the uh, emotional pulse of that defense. A lot of, in a lot of ways, he was like a three hundred pound nine year old in a lot of ways during the week. I mean, he, he didn't seem to take anything seriously. Uh, and if there was laughing going on in the locker room, which there usually was, Jerome was usually in the middle of it. That was all fine Monday through Friday. Uh, but come Sunday, come one o'clock Sunday, he was ready to play. And he kind of he kind of set the tempo for that whole defense and was really, really a great player. I mean, if he had if he had not died tragically young in that car crash, um, I mean, I think he probably would have been a Hall of Fame player. 
And so that whole defensive line, Reggie, Clyde Simmons, who was a really good player, somewhat overrated, underrated because he had to play with them at the other end. And then in the middle, you had Jerome Brown and Mike Golick, who was a pretty good player, too. That was about as good a defensive line as I've seen. And my other question about that team, if I, if I may, if, if, if Buddy has any offensive acumen at all or want to do something with the offense around, around Randall Cunningham, how many Super Bowls does that team win? They certainly would have at least gotten to a Super Bowl. There's no question they had the talent to do that. It was the best defense in football. I mean, there was one year where they ranked first against the run, first against the pass, and number one overall. I mean, that's that's pretty rare. I mean, no team had done that since the Purple People Eaters, Minnesota, 1975, I guess. So, I mean, statistically, they were way ahead of everybody else. They always led the league in sacks. They led the league in takeaways. Uh, it was a dominating – it was clearly a dominating defense. Comparable to the 85 Bears, right? I mean – uh, Yeah, pretty close. I mean, it's the closest thing I've seen to the 85 Bears. Uh, and, and, of course, Buddy was the defensive coordinator of that Bear team. So what he did in Philadelphia was he tried to build a defense like the 85 Bears, and he came pretty damn close. The only problem was that Buddy really had very little – he had very little patience or regard for the offense. He just didn't. I mean, he just felt – I'm going to build a defense that is so good that we can win it just with that, which is kind of what the Bears did in 85. Uh, and so offensively, he didn't even really try it. He didn't worry about the players. He didn't try to coach them a whole heck of a lot. He had this very uniquely talented quarterback in Randall Cunningham. And Buddy would often say, look, Randall, just go out and make three or four big plays. You know, there was no real structure to the offense. There was no real rhyme nor rhythm to the play calling. It was just... Randall, go make a couple big plays and the defense will do the rest. Well, that'll get you to the playoffs, and it did pretty much every year. But in the playoffs, you're playing good teams, you know, and you need a balanced team and you need some semblance of offense and discipline to win in the postseason. And Buddy's teams, that's one of the areas where they just always came up short. Everything you described about that team, I was just curious, in a, in a way, did maybe the team closest to that team on the Philadelphia sports team was it the 93 Phillies in terms of talent characters the clubhouse but also strong leadership like uh, Dutch Dalton uh, those guys all produced on the big stage when they were called upon even that whack job Lenny Dykstra uh, just just a tremendous player you know between the lines but that in terms of like talent but also the characters in that locker room. I know they could probably be a little bit nastier maybe than the Eagles, but it seems like that was a little bit of the same thing or no. Yeah, no, I think that's a pretty good comparison. I, I think that's a pretty good comparison. The 93 Phillies was a team with, um, you know, an, a, a huge personality with a lot of very, uh, shall we say, colorful individuals on the team. The, the whole macho row thing was very real to those guys. And you know, the Eagles didn't talk in terms of Macho Row, but they had one. There's no there's no doubt. If you were around that team, you know, it was just it was Macho Row, but without the nickname. Uh and so what we saw with the with the Phillies in ninety-three was was very akin. The difference between them was that there was there was real greatness in that Eagles team. I mean, there was the potential there to really be a, a championship team and maybe a team that could stay on top for a while. The ninety-three Phillies were a lot of just a lot of guys, a lot of journeyman players that all of a sudden kind of had a career year all together in 93 and um, kind of had a lightning in a bottle sort of experience with that team, got to the World Series, lose to Toronto. But there was never the feeling with that team or 
being around that team, that this was a team that was set up to become a long-term success. You kind of saw it for what it was. Whereas with the Buddy Ryan Eagles, I mean, they had a chance to get on top and stay on top for a long time. They just weren't quite able to pull that off. This is the Blue White Breakdown. Welcome to Cureleaf, a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a longtime patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Cureleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. Have questions? Visit us at cureleaf.com or stop in to see us at any of our locations, including our new state college dispensary located at 1248 South Atherton Street. Let's talk medical marijuana and let our confidence become yours. You go through the Ray Rhodes era, which was was what it was, and and then the Andy Reid era, which was lengthy and uh, mastering the the salary cap in a way that always kept kept them competitive, but couldn't get over the top in '04. That kind of uh, languished for a while, and then you go through kind of a dead period. Did you see 2017 coming at all? And when did you? If you did. Uh, no, not at the start of the year. No. Uh, I mean, there were obvious questions, not just I was asking, but a lot of people were asking about who's Doug Peterson. It was obvious that, that Chip Kelly uh, had burned all the bridges here and, and pretty much had to go after year three. Uh, but then, OK, now where do we go from here? And uh, everybody was guessing, could it be John Gruden? Could it be this guy? Could it be that guy? And when they announced uh, they were hiring Doug Peterson, it was kind of like, what? I mean, nobody could. And I mean, the only thing that people in Philadelphia knew about Doug Peterson was that he was a bad quarterback. I mean, he had been he was the guy that was the the veteran they brought in to play until they until Donovan McNabb was ready to play. Uh, but the idea that he's the head coach, really? What did what did you, what did you say on Sportsnet? Do you remember what's the most critical thing you said on Sportsnet? Well, the most critical thing I said was a laugh. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I I remember when we were on the radio, Glenn Macdow and I on WIP. And we, and we were kicking around. We were just kicking around um, who, you know, who could the Eagles interview? Who could the Eagles talk to now? Because there were some candidates out there. Uh, and because uh, there was I was hearing chatter that, that, hey, Gruden, Gruden wants to get back in. Gruden's ready to, you know, the broadcasting thing was fine, but he's ready to coach again. And that's kind of what I was saying. Hey, if John Gruden wants to coach again, they, they ought to call him. So we're kicking all these names around. And we got this call from a guy. I can't remember his first name, but he was calling from Kansas City. Uh, and so we say, hey, Earl from Kansas City, you're on the line. He says, listen, I can tell you who the Eagles' next head coach is going to be. And we say, oh, for sure. Who, who is it? And he said, it's going to be Doug Peterson. And Glenn McDowell and I, we both burst out laughing. We literally, <laughs> we literally burst out laughing. And what, and what I said was, you know, come on, you're, you're kidding, right? I mean, you're, you're not serious with this. Doug Peterson. And the guy said, no, I'm telling you, it's going to be Doug Peterson. He's out here coaching under Randy. He's the offensive coordinator. You know, Jeff Lurie, he's had it with Chip Kelly. He's regrets that he ever let Andy go. And he's going to try and recreate the Andy era, but he can't get Andy. So Doug Peterson's going to be, in, in Jeff's eyes, the next best thing. This guy called it right down the line. Well, and I said, no, 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 no. I mean, I, I see that what you're trying. I see that what you're trying to say here, and I see you're trying to connect these dots. But there's no way that they can bring Doug Peterson in here and sell him to the Philadelphia fans. Well, it, it wasn't a week later that there's an announcement that the Eagles, the Eagles have just hired Doug Peterson, and I'm sure, I'm sure that guy in Kansas City was laughing his butt off at us. 
He ran it by us and we just said, oh, no, don't don't be ridiculous. But he came in and with and by the second year, here they are. You know, and I, to, to your point and to your question, David, did I see it coming? No. I remember a training camp that year in 2017. Um, Doug made the statement that he thought that Eagles team that he had in training camp in 2017 was the equal of the team that he played on in Green Bay that went to a Super Bowl. And again, we kind of laughed. You know, he kind of thought, oh, come on, don't don't be ridiculous. But he said, we have really good players here. You know, we just have to kind of get this thing going. But we got good players here. It proved that once the season started and they started to play, they were really good. And Carson Wentz was really good. Uh, and everything fell into place. And then what happened was sort of maybe five, six weeks into the season, you just kind of got this this wonderful sense of team chemistry that kicked in. And the whole thing just it became greater than the sum of its parts. You can feel that, can't you? I, I remember feeling that preseason with the 05 Penn State team and that the the three captains, Pazluzny, Zemitis, and Robinson, all had like control of different sectors of the team. I don't know. You could. I, I remember being on Sportsnet. I think you were on and, and we were kicking around. Dana was on and everyone is – Picking them like six and five, seven and four. I had been Mr. Pessimist in the past. I'd predict, predict a losing season in 2000 because it looked it looked bad. And I just said 10 and one. And they went, what? But it was only because you could feel that leadership. And it's it's like a, a very it's a, it's an ethereal thing that kind of you don't know quite what it is, but you know it when you see it. Exactly. It's it's like the Supreme Court justice who defined pornography. <laughs> Remember he was looking at a, it was a pornography case and one, of, and one of the Supreme Court justices says, I can't define pornography, but I, I know it when I see it. Team chemistry is exactly that. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Uh, and I saw it with that team. And I remember like week three or four, um, the Eagles played that game against the New York Giants uh, at the link. Uh, they had a big lead. They squandered it. Uh, it looked like they're going to lose, but at the end of the game, they set up for this 61 yard field goal, uh, by Jake Elliott, who was this rookie kicker who had literally joined the team like a week earlier. The guys on the team didn't even know his name and they run him out on the field with seconds to go to attempt this 61 yard field goal. And he makes it. Uh, and I remember I'm sitting in the booth. I'm sitting in our uh, broadcast location in the studio at Comcast Sportsnet. And the ball goes through the uprights, and I'm sitting next to Seth Joyner, okay, uh, who is no who is nobody's Pollyanna. With these things. And 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 Seth said, you know what, this might just be the year. Destiny's child. And I and I said, you know, come on, Seth, it's week three, and, and he said, I'm telling you, stuff like this doesn't happen for no reason, okay. It, this only makes sense in the context of something bigger. And I, I thought, ah, oh, no, that's, that's kind of crazy. But the guy had been on two Super Bowl teams. He knew he, and he kind of felt, he kind of felt it coming. But by the middle of the season, I think we all felt it that this team was on a special ride. Uh, Ray, I just wanted to ask you, how often did your, uh, your job as a writer intersect with maybe a couple of Penn State moments? Obviously, not a priority. Uh, based out of Philadelphia, but did you get a chance to spend, whether it was a big bowl game or, you know, I don't know that Alabama, I don't know if that Alabama Penn State game in the Sugar Bowl, but were there any, uh, were there any moments where you had a chance to kind of intersect with Penn State, whether it was in the 70s, 80s, or even 90s, and 
What what was kind of maybe did you did you spend any time around Joe or no? 1982. He's going to tell some stories now. Uh, well, yeah, I went up. I went up to Penn State in uh, in '82 to do a series of articles for the newspaper, and uh, sort of walked into a firestorm up there. I, I went up there to just do a piece about uh, Penn State football and uh, and Joe and the whole Happy Valley kind of mystique. Uh, and what I found was there it wasn't exactly what everybody on the outside thought that it was. Mm-hmm wound up writing a series of articles that proved to be uh, um, a lot tougher and a lot more controversial than anybody expected. So I had that for sure. But I was at that Sugar Bowl you were talking about, the one that they played Alabama what a game. and lost. Great game. And I, I remember the goal line stand really well. I remember Mike Gooman getting stopped at the goal line by Barry Krause. I mean, I, I remember all of that stuff. And I, I, one, of, one of the mo- most interesting interviews I did in my 53 years of doing this was interviewing Mike Reed, who had been the great Penn State player of the 60s, uh, who then went to the NFL, had a great NFL career, but left after like four or five years to go play music uh, and catching up with him down in Nashville years later uh, and just talking to him about his life, about football, about his decision to leave the game really at the peak of his talent and career and go off to do what he really wanted to do, which was write and perform music. He's And, and I've interviewed thousands of people really in 50 years. But if you ask me to list maybe my five most interesting interviews I've done, Mike Reed would have been one of those. Is there any guy more eclectic that you've ever met than Mike Reed? He happens to be a friend of my sister's from several different junctures in their lives. They both lived in Cincinnati. They both lived in Nashville. Um, and they, her, her ex-husband, her late husband, uh, was a session singer. So they, they knew each other fairly well. But Mike Reed wrote, I can't make you love me for Bonnie Raitt, for God's right. sakes. <laughs> and right. he was an all-pro defensive tackle for the Bengals for how many years? Three or four years, right? Yeah, and he was uh, – and at a time when there were some great defensive linemen in the NFL, I mean, if you ask me who were the two best, and I'm talking – this is the time of Alan Page and Joe uh, Green. Bob Lilly and all of them. I would I would tell you Mean Joe Green and Mike Reed. I think they were the two best. and. It was really shocking to most people that he made the decision, and again, really at the peak of his career, you know, to walk away and 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 play his music. And you're right, the "You Can't Make Me Love Me" uh, is 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 one of the most achingly heartbreaking songs you could ever imagine. Uh, and here was written; it was written by Mike Reed. Uh, yeah, he was what a, what a great and what a super intelligent person. I mean, you you just sit down and have a conversation with him, and it's. Uh, it can go in a million different directions, but they're all fascinating. Just by chance, I've written stories with him, talking to him in the 80s, 90s, aughts, and teens. And so I guess I got to call him again because there'll be five stories in five different decades, simply because we knew him. You know, I, I knew him and I was a Bengals fan anyway. Ray, it's been wonderful having you and... uh Geez, we, I mean, we really need to have you on again. I suppose yeah. at some point we will. And we're going to get to some other people this summer. We're going to keep doing this over the summer. Anytime, Dave. Thanks so much, Ray. And um, I got to mention that Tommy and me will open up, I believe it's August 18th at the Hershey Theater. First run in Hershey, 18, 19, and 20. You can get your tickets on Ticketmaster uh, for that. Ray Dittinger, Bob Flounders, I'm Dave Jones. Uh, we'll see you next time. This has been the Blue White Breakdown, brought to you by Penn Live.